you worshiping together today, siblings. I invite you to turn in your Bibles or Bible apps to the Gospel according to Mark, the first chapter, beginning with the 14th verse. Let us receive together the Word of God. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. As Jesus passed along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you fish for people. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. As he went a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, who were in their boat mending the nets. Immediately he called to them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, he entered the synagogue and taught. They were astounded at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Just then, there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying with a loud voice, came out of him. They were all amazed, and they kept on asking one another, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. At once his fame began to spread throughout the surrounding region of Galilee. Receive what the Spirit is saying. Thanks be to God. Friends, let us pray. Spirit of life and love, Come and dwell with us in all of the places we are. May your word go forth because or in spite of me this day, so that what you need us to receive will be received. I trust you to make it so. In the power of Jesus' name I pray, amen. Next month will mark nine years since 18-year-old Trayvon Martin was murdered. July of this year will mark eight years since the acquittal of the man who shot Trayvon. And the outcry that then spurred the Black Lives Matter movement 
that continues to mobilize, to fight, and to end state-sanctioned violence, to liberate Black people, to end white supremacy. July of this year will also mark seven years since I began my ministry at Foundry. My appointment began in July of 2014. That month, Eric Garner was strangled to death by police in New York City. A month after my arrival, 18-year-old Michael Brown was fatally shot by a white police officer in Ferguson, Missouri. In those first months, as the senior pastor of Foundry, I was reading as much commentary on these events as I could get my hands on. I was praying a lot and in regular conversation with the Foundry clergy team, then consisting of pastors Don, Teresa, Al, and Ben, about how to faithfully respond, how to faithfully position Foundry in the struggle. There was so much that I did not know. I knew enough to know that. In November of that year, 2014, 12-year-old Tamir Rice was shot and killed by police in Cleveland. A couple of weeks later, the second week of Advent, 2014, I preached a sermon in which I proclaimed Black Lives Matter for the first time aloud in worship. I confessed my own many failures as an ally in the struggle. And I encouraged our mostly white congregation to not use our privilege to opt out, but to engage, to recommit to the concrete work of what we now call anti-racism. Over the next year, a new racial justice ministry team offered regular studies and opportunities to engage in learning and advocacy. In 2016, our first scholar in residence was the Reverend Dr. Alton B. Pollard III, then Dean of Howard Divinity School, who challenged and taught us through a series of book studies, films, and facilitated conversations. I mentioned some of this history in my book, Sacred Resistance, particularly referencing the debate about whether and why to hang a banner outside Foundry, a debate that began in 2014. As I wrote in the book, some in the congregation wanted to immediately hang a large banner emblazoned with hashtag Black Lives Matter outside the church building. In an intense moment during a workshop with Dr. Pollard, 
African-American members of Foundry expressed concern about hanging a banner without the engagement and commitment of the whole congregation. To publicly communicate a commitment to the Black Lives Matter movement without knowing the form our solidarity would take, what actions, relationships, money, tangible support. And doing that, to hang a banner without knowing what form our solidarity would take, smacked for many of an attempt to check the box and say we'd done our work on white supremacy without having to engage in the same kind of deep work that had taken place at Foundry around marriage equality. Dr. Pollard in that same conversation made it quite clear that if the congregation chose to step out with such clear advocacy for racial equity and justice, there would be negative consequences. Just get ready, he said. Stories abound not only of the defacement of signs and banners proclaiming Black Lives Matter, but also the ongoing violence against black and brown bodies and those who stand with them. Foundry's intentional work, I wrote, Foundry's intentional work of engagement and advocacy continues unabated. But at the time of this writing, there is no banner. The book was published in 2018. Last summer, we hung a banner proclaiming Black Lives Matter and we littered the signs all over our lawn proclaiming that message. It was time. It was time because we had both committed as a congregation to the journey to racial justice and we were well underway in the work when the blood of Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, and George Floyd cried out from the ground, their blood spilled, crying out for justice. Today we have a, I think it's a 21-foot banner across our lawn with those words proclaiming our commitment. We're actively engaged with sibling congregations, Asbury UMC and John Wesley AME Zion. And the Journey to Racial Justice team is working to craft a strategy for meaningful change. I'm grateful for the ongoing, unfolding work. I'm going to pause this sort of time capsule, a little bit of foundry history, to turn to our gospel story for today. What we receive in our text is the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. Right at the beginning of Jesus' appointment, his cousin and partner in ministry, the prophet John, known as the baptizer, is arrested for calling out Herod to his face for marrying Herod's brother's wife, a flagrant disregard for the law. 
We're told later in the story, the Gospel of Mark, that while in custody, John is brutally murdered. And also, right off the bat, Jesus encounters in his ministry a man with an unclean, akatharto is the Greek, an unclean spirit. Now, you may hear in the Greek, akatharto, the same root that gives us the English catharsis. A catharsis is a purgation, a purification. Akatharto literally means not purged, not clean. There are many ways we might think about this, but at the most basic level, akatharto refers to something that separates from God or is against God or against God's will. Akatharto spirits or energies need to be purged so that a person or a community can freely experience life in God's love and mercy and justice. The story in our gospel reveals that Jesus has that thing, again in the Greek, exousia, that extraordinary power, influence, moral authority that moves people to respond, that changes lives. And when the man with the akatharto spirit encounters Jesus, he knows he's exposed. He knows that Jesus knows. And that Jesus, through that knowing, has the power to literally call out that in him which is not of God. What happens next is that the unclean spirits do not leave quietly or peacefully. They scream and do bodily harm to the one who'd been giving them harbor. So to recap, the framing issues of Jesus' ministry are prophets being arrested by the state, silenced and killed, and akatharto spirits doing damage to God's children, spirits who, when identified and rebuked, do not leave quietly but act in violent ways, seemingly bent on destruction. Does this sound at all familiar to anything in our own lives and context? I hope it is not necessary for me to detail the ways that events over the past weeks and months find their resonance in the gospel narrative. Those crying out for justice, being manhandled and jailed, like John, and those whose hatred, bigotry, and violence is called out, reacting with even more vitriol, and violence. 
resonance to our gospel is also found with the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who was sitting in solitary confinement in the Birmingham jail in 1963 when he wrote the letter that inspires this series. It was only a matter of time that he, like John, would be murdered. King knew firsthand what happens when Akatharto spirits within the human family are publicly named and consistently called out. There's an ugly outcry and bodily harm done to innocent victims. And yet Dr. King was resolute and clear. Jesus had called him and he followed. He knew that the time was ripe. His naysayers said that the direct actions he was taking were untimely, that he should give the new city administration time to act. King's response, I quote, we know through painful experience that freedom is never voluntarily given by the oppressor. It must be demanded by the oppressed. Frankly, I have yet to engage in a direct action campaign that was well-timed in the view of those who have not suffered unduly from the disease of segregation. Wait has almost always meant Never. We must come to see with one of our distinguished jurists that justice too long delayed is justice denied. There may be some members of Foundry who grow weary of this continued conversation around racial justice and equity. Some likely know it's important, but just want a break from it at church. Some may be wondering why we keep talking about it or why we are investing so much energy and so many resources in the work of anti-racism right now. Some may think we're actually really already good to go on this topic. We're doing fine. Some may believe there are other more important things we should focus on right now. And still others may feel uncomfortable or judged in the conversation. Some of our members of color might be concerned that we're doing this work right now simply because it is the issue du jour. Just another passing church program that won't have any lasting impact or make real change. But I return to where I began reminding us that the journey to racial justice at Foundry is not a knee-jerk reaction in the present moment, 
but has been inching, sometimes lurching along since well before my arrival. And certainly over the past six and a half years, the truth is that we have deep work to do together in order to accomplish the catharsis, the purgation of the internal, interpersonal, institutional, and structural racism in our shared life. Wanting to have a break from the conversation be understandable for people of color who may be exhausted with grief and exposure, tired of all talk and no change. And we white people struggle with grief and discomfort and feelings of guilt and tension and confusion and may want to take a break for all those reasons. But let me say just as gently as I can to my white family members, our siblings of color don't get to opt out or take a break really from any of this. Our call is to love each other. Can we not, as a sign of solidarity and personal and institutional accountability and faithfulness, as a sign of our willingness to follow Jesus, can we not stay open and connected both to the conversation and to the emerging work, even and especially when it is painful and difficult and confusing and makes you uncomfortable or when it brings up feelings that are hard? Can we not bear even that for the sake of justice, for the sake of our beloved siblings? In 2014, I said racial bias is real and infects our culture like a cancer. It's not a black problem. People still say that. It's not a black problem. It's mostly a white problem. I'm adding that part. It is truly a human problem. Racial justice is not a liberal or a progressive issue. It is a Christian issue and an issue of conscience for all people of goodwill. Racism's insidious power affects us all. And such Entrenched, insidious, deadly power and ways of thinking, assuming and acting will not be vanquished quietly or easily. That is so clear, is it not? I mean, our own experience, inching, occasionally lurching, often stalling. So far we have to go. Purging systemic racism is not a matter that will simply magically work itself out over time without any tension or forcing of the issue. In response to one who urged waiting because the teachings of Christ take time to come to earth, King wrote, 
such an attitude stems from a tragic misconception of time. From the strangely irrational notion that there is something in the very flow of time that will inevitably cure all ills. Actually, time itself is neutral, he writes. It can be used either destructively or constructively. More and more, I feel that the people of ill will have used time much more effectively than have the people of goodwill. We will have to repent in this generation, not merely for the hateful words and actions of the bad people, but for the appalling silence of the good people. Human progress never rolls in on wheels of inevitability. It comes through the tireless efforts of those willing to be co-workers with God. And without this hard work, time itself becomes an ally of the forces of social stagnation. We must, says King, use time creatively in the knowledge that the time is always ripe to do right. Now is the time to make real the promise of democracy and transform our pending national elegy into a creative psalm of brotherhood, he says. Now is the time to lift our national policy from the quicksand of racial injustice to the solid rock of human dignity. Reverend Dr. King wrote those words 58 years ago. 58 years. It was the time then. We had the chance then. Look at where we are today. This itself, acknowledging that there may have been strides, but mercy, we have seen what's real over these last months and years in our land. And what we have seen revealed in ourselves, in our city, in our nation and world is a testament to the power of the Akatharto spirits of racial prejudice and white supremacy, just how determined they are to steal from us and from the whole human family the life together that is possible. Years of study and conversation and consciousness raising have brought us to this moment as a congregation. There have been moments all along the way when we might have done and said more, when we could have stepped into the work of racial justice and equity in a more sustained and impactful way. But the good news is that Jesus is calling us again today to follow. We can choose this very day 
to receive the power and freedom Jesus gives us to share in the work of catharsis, of purgation, to cast out the soul-staining, body-breaking powers of white supremacy from our lives, from our church, our denomination, our nation. We are called to do, you and I are called to do the work of sustained, tension-bearing, public engagement and advocacy and personal soul-searching. Now is the time to do something. The year 2021 is the time to do something definitive for our congregation, for racial justice and equity, for our beloved siblings. Something definitive, as definitive and concrete as the summer of great discernment around marriage equality. Now is our time. And we're called to use the time creatively to be moved by the power of Jesus at work in and through us to move our lives and institutions from the quicksand of racial injustice to the solid rock of human dignity. We may be 400 years past time, but the time is always ripe to do what is right. It's time.